Please note, rewards offered are subject to change or expire. To the author's knowledge, reward amounts are current and valid as of this episode's air date and may be subject to terms and conditions. Please confirm all reward details with the relevant case authority listed in the show notes. Welcome to episode one of Reward Offered. I'm your host, Amanda. Each episode, we will be covering an unsolved Australian case that also has a financial reward on offer for relevant information. Together, we're going to be examining various types of cases, homicides, missing persons, arsons, assaults, and more. If there's a reward offered, we'll cover it. My goal is to create an in-depth, one-stop shop for information on each case. For some crimes, there won't be much information available, and those episodes will be shorter. But in other cases, such as this one, where there is large amounts of information, we'll spend as many episodes on them as we need to. For our first case, we're delving into the unsolved murders of Lorraine Ruth Wilson and Wendy Joy Evans, which occurred near Murphy's Creek, just outside of Toowoomba, Queensland, in 1974. To date, there have been two coroner's inquests in the case. But unfortunately, with the current evidence, the offenders have not been sufficiently identified to be subsequently charged. It could be you or someone you know holding the missing piece of the puzzle that will finally bring the families of these young, vibrant, adventure-seeking women the justice they've sought for almost 50 years. I truly believe it's never too late, that victim stories can never be told too many times or too often. And as a fan of true crime, I've seen what this community can accomplish when we work together. Every unsolved case requires a trigger, something that prompts the right person to come forward with the right information. Our hope is to increase awareness and encourage more discussion for all of the cases that we cover. The current reward offered for information that leads to the apprehension and conviction of the person or persons responsible for the murders of Lorraine and Wendy is $250,000. And a reminder, you can remain anonymous when claiming rewards. Once again, welcome to episode one of Reward Offered. Let's get into the details. If any of the details of this case cause you distress, please reach out to Lifeline on 13 11 14 in Australia or a relevant crisis support service in your local area. If you hear my cat, I apologize. I I can't look her out of the room because she just scratches at the door, which actually makes more noise. So if you hear a cat, just say, hi, Farah. Okay, so the information I initially present in this case is taken predominantly from official sources. More often than not, the coroner's findings from the second inquest. I will be giving an account of the official theory of the case, but I need to mention that during the course of my research into the murders, I became aware of an alternate theory in the case. A theory not regarding the what, where or when, but the who. Initially, I was resistant to the notion of introducing anything other than the official story. However, the alternate theory, for lack of a better term, also highlights problems, including some I hadn't noticed, with the narrative presented at the inquest. Let me be clear. 
I am not saying that the official theory is wrong or that the alternate theory is correct. But in my opinion, some of the issues with the official story raise possible doubt over certain aspects of the official narrative. For this reason, after presenting the official side, I will also present the key points of this second theory. I tell you this up front because I want you to really pay attention to the information presented. What is the evidence actually showing? What is the appropriate weight to give each piece of evidence? I'm here to give you all the information. It's up to you to decide what you believe adds up. To be honest, my fear is that those with information may not come forward with evidence if it isn't related to the individuals already named in the official story, because they may assume it has no relevance. We have to be open to other names, other theories of how events of the case unfolded, because we don't have definitive answers of what happened. And I don't believe it does the case, or the girls, any justice to rule out any person or theory for which we just don't have the evidence to exclude. This is about finding the truth, not about simply finding evidence to support an existing theory. We know the rule. Let the evidence form your theory, don't let your theory form the evidence. First up, the official story. We're actually going to start with the story where it stands today, in 2021, and then we're going to go back to the start. The most recent event in this case is the second coroner's inquest that was heard across multiple dates in 2013 by Mr Michael Barnes, who was the state coroner of Queensland at the time. His conclusion was that Lorraine and Wendy died on the 6th or 7th of October 1974 at or near Murphy's Creek and that both women, quote, died as the result of head wounds intentionally inflicted by or in the presence of Wayne Robert Hilton and one or more persons who cannot be sufficiently identified, end quote. When referencing an inquest, report or findings throughout this case, I'm referring to this second inquest unless otherwise stated. It has been claimed that Wayne Hilton, commonly referred to in this case by his nickname Boogie, would have been charged at the conclusion of the inquest had he not already died in a car accident which occurred in 1986, 12 years after the murders of the girls. We also have other names. A pre-inquest hearing identified seven persons of interest, five of whom are now deceased to my knowledge. These five men are Wayne Robert Hilton, nicknamed Boogie, who we just mentioned, Alan John Laurie, nicknamed Shorty, Donald Laurie, nicknamed Donnie, Larry Charles, and Desmond Roy Hilton, nicknamed Desi. All but Desmond Hilton had already died prior to the commencement of the second inquest. However, he has also since passed, having died in 2019. The two persons of interest still alive are Alan Neil Laurie, nicknamed Ungi, and Terence James O'Neill, nicknamed Jimmy. Both surviving men claim they had no involvement in the murders, and as everyone should be, they are entitled to the presumption of innocence. Desmond Hilton, it would appear, was only ever considered by police to have been an accessory after the fact in their theory, not an active participant in the murders of the women. Right off the bat, we're looking at multiple episodes for Lorraine and Wendy's case. Given there is coroner's findings and questions as to what all the evidence actually shows, we have a lot of information to cover. And that's before we even get to the alternate theory. If you like brief overviews of cases, uh, this podcast might not be the one for you. My goal is to get as much information out about each of the cases as is possible. Now that you know where the case stands today, let's go back to where the girls' stories start.
Lorraine Ruth Wilson was born in Dubbo, New South Wales, on the 21st of July 1954, making her 20 at the time of her murder. She had three siblings and was the baby of the family. Lorraine was 5'5", or 166 centimetres tall, and weighed, and weighed approximately 139 pounds, or 63 kilograms. Her brother Eric has eagerly pursued justice for his sister and her friend over the years, even having penned two books about the case. The first, titled The Echo of Silent Screams, was published in 2003. The second was published in 2015, after the conclusion of the second coroner's inquest, and is titled The Ricochet of Echoes. Wendy Joy Evans was born in Sydney on the 31st of January 1956, so she was only 18 at the time of her murder. She was the middle child of five, and when you see photos of Wendy and Lorraine next to each other, Wendy is the shorter one, standing only 5'2", or approximately 157 centimetres tall, and weighing 154 pounds, or about 70 kilos. Now, the reason for noting their height and weight differences will come up later as we discuss witness statements and some of the injuries to the girls. The two women were best friends. They met at St George Hospital in the suburb of Cogra, Sydney, where they had commenced their nursing studies in August of 1973. Both had just finished their first-year examinations shortly before they disappeared. So how is it that the girls come to be in Murphy's Creek? As is often the case, several events occurred which the totality of resulted in the girls being where they were, when they were, in the wrong place, at the wrong time. It's hard to know how far back you could go with these chance events, but we're going to start with the girls' decision to take a bus tour together after commencing their recreation leave in August of 1974. This bus takes them from Sydney, up the east coast of Australia, arriving in Brisbane before continuing on and stopping in Townsville, Mount Isa, Catherine, Darwin and Alice Springs, before returning to Lorraine's hometown of Dubbo on the 27th of September 1974. They stayed several days at the Wilson family property, located some 65 kilometres outside of Dubbo, and on the 30th of September, at 6am, gathered their belongings and jumped in Lorraine's V-Dub Beetle, bound for Brisbane. On the way, the Beetle breaks down, and the car is towed to a town called Gundawindi, where they are told it will likely be at least a week before it's fixed. With no car, the girls hitchhike to Brisbane and arrive at the home of Wendy's sister Susan in the evening of Monday the 30th of September, 1974. They spend the rest of the week exploring Brisbane and dining at the local restaurants and hotels at night. As the week comes to a close, the mechanic who has Lorraine's car is no closer to being able to tell her when it will be ready. Knowing they need to be back in Sydney by October 10 for work, the girls decide that they will return directly to the Wilson house in Dubbo and Lorraine's parents will collect the car whenever it's ready. Now, if you're in Brisbane and you were going to Dubbo, there are several routes you could take, but the two most direct routes would take you via Gundawindi anyway. So if the car was suddenly fixed in time, they would have been able to collect it and finish the drive down to Dubbo. But unfortunately, the girls never make it as far as Gundawindi. It's at this point where we come to another cruel what-if moment, this time for Wendy's sister. Susan knew it was unsafe for the girls to be hitchhiking, so she offers to loan them the money for bus or train tickets, but the girls decline. They want to save the money and opt for the cheaper option of hitching a ride. So on the morning of Sunday, October 6, at approximately 11am, the girls set off, 
each with a small vinyl suitcase and shoulder bag in hand. They tell Susan they plan to catch a bus to the outer suburbs and hitchhike from there. According to the coroner's report, when they leave Susan's house, Lorraine is thought to be wearing a pair of new blue jeans, a striped cheesecloth shirt and has her hair up in a bun. Wendy also has on jeans and is wearing a blue t-shirt. Both women are wearing black slaps. Now, I will admit I did have to Google both cheesecloth shirts and black slaps. Cheesecloth shirts, I did have an, oh, those moment. Um, But I can't say the same for black slaps. Those are, I mean, combining straw and velvet certainly makes for unique footwear. We now come to the first unconfirmed, though likely, witness sighting of Lorraine and Wendy after they depart Susan's. A man named Anthony Doherty states that on the 6th of October 1974, he was at the outer Brisbane suburb of Oxley and stopped at a shop across the road from the Oxley Hotel to buy a cake to take to lunch with them. His wife was also with him. He notices a younger man sitting in a light green Holden with a white roof. There is conflicting reports as to whether he said he believes he saw an E.H. or an E.J. Holden, and we'll discuss both models a little later, but it's realistically possible that he could have believed it to be either. He says he paid particular attention to the man because he thought he knew him at first. His description of the man is about 20 years of age. He has a round face and black, curly, matted hair with a silly grin and not looking too bright. In his book, Lorraine's brother Eric says Doherty believed the man to be about 5'7", although said it was difficult to be sure as he was sitting. Mr Doherty also thought there may have been some form of roof rack or surfboard rack on top of the vehicle. As he is looking at the car, a girl comes out of the shop looking rather unhappy and sits down on the bag that she has with her. She doesn't sit next to the Holden though, rather back and away from it. Mr Doherty would later identify this woman as Wendy Evans. At this point, another man walks out of the shop, followed by a woman who Mr Doherty identifies as being Lorraine Wilson. What happens next? It seems to be a situation where Lorraine is keen for them to be in the vehicle with these two men, but Wendy, for whatever reason, is not keen at all. Mr Doherty reports hearing Lorraine say something to the effect of, like, oh, come on, let's go. We've got to go, with Wendy replying something along the lines of, no, I don't, I don't want to go. He claims Lorraine indicates she is leaving with or without her friend, and Wendy finally relents, picking up her bag and entering the rear right-hand seat of the car. He describes the driver as also about 20 years of age, tanned and appearing much like the surfer type of that era. Eric's book claims Doherty indicated this man was approximately the same height as Lorraine, who again is 5'5". However, the coroner's report lists him as being approximately 180 centimetres or 5'11". I would usually go with the information in the coroner's report, but I found some errors throughout the findings, so I'll list both heights because I really don't know which is correct without having access to the inquest transcript or Doherty's previous police statements. He goes on to describe the man he sees as having a thin face, sandy brown, medium length, straight hair, and a muscular physique. Mr Doherty also mentions a tattoo on an upper arm. He is, however, unsure which arm, before finally settling that it was probably the left. He says the man was wearing a leather vest and no shirt. He was shown a photo board but couldn't identify anyone from it, although, unfortunately, we don't know who was or wasn't on that board. 
I haven't seen any indication that Mr Doherty's wife has ever given any information or been questioned in relation to the events reported by him as having occurred on the 6th of October 1974. It's quite possible, though, that she was inside the store for the entirety of the time and has nothing further of value to add. Mr Doherty does claim that he approached authorities in either 1976 or 1977 when he phoned police headquarters and asked to speak with a detective. He states he spoke with someone identified as a duty sergeant, who informed him that he must be mistaken as the girls had been spotted in the suburb of Holland Park heading down the Pacific Highway. This is apparently consistent with an initial incorrect assumption by police that that was the route the girls had taken. But given the girls' bodies were discovered in July of 1976, I have to believe this exchange with the officer occurred prior to this, because you wouldn't think the officer would have been so quick to dismiss the information if the bodies had been found at that point. It wouldn't be until 1989 that Mr Doherty was able to finally speak with a detective in Toowoomba and give his statement. In 1976, a bus driver came forward claiming he had records to indicate that on a day he believed to be the 6th of October 1974, he had seen two young women, one significantly taller than the other, standing on the outbound side of the road between the Jindalee Lights and the Police Academy Oxley on Ipswich Road. There is no indication of the distance between the driver and the women he sees. He says both women had luggage with them. In the brief time they were within his sights, he saw what he believed to be a faded, light green, 1963 Holden sedan with possible roof racks or board racks on top, pull up alongside the girls and they got into the back seat. This vehicle is listed in the coroner's report as an E.K. Holden, but Eric states in his first book that it was an E.J. Holden. Again, which model is listed in the initial witness statement? I'm not sure. While you could possibly confuse an E.J. and an E.H. Holden due to their very similar body shapes, it's more of a stretch to think that someone confused an E.J. and an E.K. The E.K. is very different to the E.J. and E.H., I'll put examples of each model in the photo album on the website so you can see the comparisons. The coroner's report could also just be a typo. J and K are next to each other on the keyboard. Actually, coincidentally, H, J and K are right next to each other. But back to the bus driver. To him, the driver of the car appeared to be about 20 years of age, with fair, shoulder-length hair, and was accompanied by another male youth of approximately the same age, but with fair hair described as being in a, quote, Afro-style. From what I've read, the bus driver doesn't seem to get nearly as good of a look at either the women or the men in the scene that he witnesses. Now, I have no idea if this man saw Wendy and Lorraine or not, but in my opinion, I don't think it's our girls, for this reason. If you look at the initial location of the girls at Camp Hill and their intended direction of travel, the bus driver's sighting would only make sense coming after Doherty's, because the location he describes is outbound from where Doherty's sighting is listed as having occurred. But I believe Anthony Doherty's sighting, given his seemingly close proximity to the people he sees, is probably one of the strongest witness sightings of the girls. So if we work off the assumption that he does in fact see our girls, and we take into account the location of where the bus driver says he sees them further down the road, it makes zero sense to me that we have this tiff in the car park across from the Oxley Hotel about Wendy not wanting to get in the car, and then not long later, and between only 500 metres to a couple of kilometres down the road, these same women are now somehow back on the side of the road with their luggage, in a position where a car can pull up and them apparently get in, 
both immediately and willingly as per the bus driver's description. He also lists both males as having fair hair, which doesn't match Doherty's statement. I just can't reconcile how both of these sightings can be our girls. And again, given the greater detail of Doherty's statement, I lean towards believing he is more likely to have seen Lorraine and Wendy. Hitchhiking was incredibly common at the time, as was the vehicle described by the bus driver. He very well could have seen exactly what he says he saw, when he saw it. But in my opinion, he's just more likely to have seen two different women. Whether you believe one or both of these sightings could be our girls, a question that arises is how did the girls get to Oxley? Realistically, they more than likely got a lift from very near Susan's house, or perhaps did end up catching a bus as they had previously indicated was their plan. Personally, I find it impossible to consider that they walked their luggage all that way. It's roughly a three-hour walk from Camp Hill to Oxley, yet only about a 20-minute drive. As a side note, in 1976, homicide detectives running a roadside reenactment just south of Brisbane on the Gold Coast were stunned when a policewoman dressed in clothing similar to the last known outfit of another then-missing woman had 15 motorists try to pick her up within the first 20 minutes of her standing there. I have to believe that given this result... Lorraine and Wendy would not have been waiting long for a ride once they started seeking one out. According to Eric Wilson, no one has ever come forward to say that they gave the girls a lift from Camp Hill to Oxley. No motorists, no taxi or bus drivers. So could whoever Anthony Doherty sees the girls with have given them a lift from Camp Hill? I find it interesting that in the summary of Mr Doherty's story in the coroner's report, he only mentions Wendy as having a bag, one which is apparently substantial enough for her to sit on leading me to believe that this is her larger piece of luggage, not her shoulder bag. Could it be that Wendy had removed herself and her bags from a vehicle she didn't want to return to, for whatever reason? Is that why there's no mention of luggage with Lorraine, because hers is still in the car? Ultimately, without another witness to say that they are responsible for transporting the girls from Camp Hill to Oxley, I lean towards the idea that the men that Mr Doherty sees are the same people that collected the girls from near Susan's that something causes Wendy to feel uncomfortable, so she gets out when they stop at the shop, taking her things with her, and Lorraine, not feeling Wendy's discomfort, seemingly convinces her to get back in. I will say that Eric seems to struggle with the notion that the girls would get into a vehicle with two men. He thinks that that situation would appear obviously dangerous to the girls, and thinks they would be far more likely to get into a vehicle with one man, as they had previously, or possibly two men, if there was a woman present. I'm working off the assumption that Anthony Doherty does see Lorraine and Wendy, not a different set of women. Eric in his book describes the setup of the vehicles as Mr Doherty is witnessing this event, and it seems unlikely that he would mistake the driver and passenger as men if one was in fact a woman, or that he would fail to notice a third woman present with the two men. He just seems to be too close in proximity to the vehicle and all these people to make that kind of mistake. As per Eric's book, Mr. Doherty is sitting in his car, waiting for his wife to return, when he notices a man in the passenger seat of the car parked opposite him. So the cars are parked facing one another, but from what I can tell, they are on either side of a driveway space or thoroughfare that runs between them. So the cars aren't nose to nose. Eric states that Mr. Doherty believes his sighting would have been around 11am, as he thinks the lunch they would have been attending would have been scheduled from about 12 midday. This timing would seem to align with when we could expect the girls to have been in that area, based on the time they are known to have departed Susan's. Camp Hill to Toowoomba is a little more than an hour and a half by car. Add in some time for them to be picked up, 
plus the stop at Oxley, they could foreseeably be in Toowoomba from around 1pm. So where are the girls taken, willingly or otherwise, and who else do they interact with between then and their later deaths? The next possible sighting of the women was at a Shell service station in Toowoomba. This sighting was only reported to police in 2005, some 30 years after the day in question. In any case, Peter Rogers informed police that in what he believed was October 1974, on what he thought was likely a Saturday, that he was at a service station in the Toowoomba CBD when he saw Kerry Thompson get out of the passenger seat of a green and white E.J. Holden being driven by a man he didn't know. Eric's book indicates that Mr. Rogers sees five people in the vehicle, Kerry, a woman, and the unidentified driver in the front, and another woman with a man who he thought he recognised from his neighbourhood where he had grown up as being Gordon Laurie. An individual present at the inquest and taking notes indicates that during his testimony, Peter Rogers said that he knew Kerry Thompson prior, but that Kerry had introduced him to Gordon Laurie at that time. Either way, in both scenarios, the third man is identified as Gordon Laurie. Mr Rogers alleges that Kerry told him he was road testing the EJ and proceeds to inform him that they had picked up two nurses who had been hitchhiking and that they were headed to a party that afternoon. Mr Rogers indicates that at some point, the woman from the front seat gets out of the vehicle to use the restroom. I have seen no evidence that Peter Rogers ever identified either of these women as Lorraine or Wendy, but he simply says that the woman who got out of the car briefly was about 5'7", of a slim build, and had dark hair. The inquest findings specifically state that the driver of the vehicle has since died in a motor vehicle accident, although, given Peter Rogers didn't know the man, Gordon Laurie denies this event ever happened, and I'm not able to find any record of Kerry Thompson, who is now deceased, ever being questioned about the matter, how anyone could know who the driver was, let alone know he'd since died in a motor vehicle accident, has got me beat. As just mentioned, Gordon Laurie was subsequently interviewed and claimed no knowledge of the murders or being in the car in question. It's impossible to know how much weight to give to this sighting by Peter Rogers, particularly given the late recollection of it. The picking up of two nurses does seem awfully specific, but if it was indeed on a Saturday, then it couldn't be our girls, as they would have been in Toowoomba on a Sunday. Mr Rogers did clearly state, though, that the only reason he thought it to be a Saturday was that looking back, he didn't believe the service station would have been open on a Sunday. A Toowoomba local believes, however, that it was the case that most of the Shell service stations were open most of the time in 1974, apart from an Ampol service station on Ruthven Street that they believe was indeed closed on Sundays. If this information is correct, it's at least a possibility that Peter Rogers could have had this interaction with Kerry and Gordon on a Sunday, which would make the event very interesting especially given there is no apparent reason as to why Mr Rogers would perjure himself with this testimony. We'll come back to this sighting a little later, though. The coroner notes in his findings that a number of other witnesses have come forward claiming to have met two nurses at a party in Toowoomba, including one that says one of the nurses told him that they had hitchhiked from Brisbane and were going to Gundawindi to collect a car. If true, this could corroborate the statement from Mr Rogers regarding his discussion with the driver of the vehicle at the service station, about two nurses and a party. It was of the coroner's opinion, though, that these reports were made so long after the events and lacked such detail that they couldn't be relied upon. The next person to possibly encounter the women was Mrs Norma Sperling, who in 1974 lived near the top of the Toowoomba Range Road. 
she came forward in 1989 and told police of an event she recalled as having happened late in 1974. Mrs Sperling said that she was at home around dark when she heard someone calling out from near her back door. She finds a young woman in her laundry who tells her she is trying to get away from the people she is with. They were insisting she go to meet the mother of one of them who apparently lived just down the road. She indicated she didn't want to go and that this had resulted in a disagreement. Mrs Sperling offered to call the police, but the woman declined and left. Not long after, Mrs Sperling hears a scream from the front of her house and looks out her window to see the same girl struggling with a man who strikes her across the face and appears to be trying to force her into a car. Mrs Sperling also reports another man and woman in the back seat of the car who are yelling and struggling with one another. This second woman appears to be trying to exit the vehicle. Mrs Sperling's husband arrives home as the event is unfolding, but after discussing it, the couple decide they most likely just witnessed a domestic and nothing more. A couple of weeks later, Mrs Sperling sees photos of the missing women in the paper and immediately concludes the photo of Lorraine resembles the woman who had been in her laundry. She describes, however, that the woman she saw was wearing a cotton dress, which is inconsistent with what Lorraine was known to be wearing when she left Susan's house and also inconsistent with what she is wearing when her body is later found. Unfortunately, Mrs Sperling doesn't contact police at this time, as her husband apparently advised her not to get involved. Later, in 1989, when speaking with police, she was also shown a photo board of 16 young men, of which she picks out a photo of Wayne Boogie Hilton, saying he was of, quote, similar appearance to the man she saw struggling with the woman who had been in her laundry and who subsequently was forced into the front seat of the vehicle. There is also reports that the woman she spoke with indicated to Mrs Sperling that she was concerned for the safety of her friend if she didn't go back, sadly suggesting that if this was our girls, Lorraine's loyalty to Wendy may have resulted in her willingly returning to her captors and her eventual death. Although if Anthony Doherty's statement is correct, it's also possible that Lorraine felt guilty if she did in fact persuade Wendy to get back into the vehicle at Oxley. So was this our girls at Mrs Sperling's house? Probably the biggest indicator, for me at least, that this may not have been our girls, is the cotton dress. As previously stated, both girls were wearing jeans when last seen by Susan, and they are wearing jeans when their bodies are discovered. Now, the girls did have luggage with them, so I guess it is possible that Lorraine could have changed. But given that evidence indicates the girls died either late on the night of October 6th or early in the morning of October 7th, I find it unlikely that Lorraine would have changed out of her jeans into the dress and then back into jeans again before being murdered later that night. On the other hand, Mrs Sperling did identify the woman in her laundry as Lorraine. The cotton dress could simply be a red herring. Mrs Sperling could just be recalling the clothing incorrectly. We know how notoriously riddled with inaccuracies witness statements can be, especially with the passage of time. In any case... Mrs Sperling is not the last person to possibly see the girls in distress on October 6, 1974. Several witnesses claim to have seen either one or two young women struggling with a man or men on the downhill section of the Toowoomba Range Road on what they believe to be the day in question. First up, we have Mr Neil and Mrs Jocelyn Beadle, with a D, who came forward in 2005 to notify police of an event they believed had happened in 1973 or 1974, while the family were travelling from Mundubra to Bow Desert. As they drove down the range at what they believed would likely have been early in the afternoon, perhaps 2 or 3 p.m., 
they saw two cars on the side of the road. The vehicles were parked in the location Mr Beadle had been planning to pull over. There was a light-coloured, possibly green Holden and a black Falcon sedan. The Holden was higher up the range, sticking out onto the bitumen slightly. They pulled up behind the Holden. Initially, he believed there had been an accident due to clothing and pillows being strewn across the road from the front of the black car all the way to the gully. When he saw a woman being assisted to the black car by two men, this bolstered his thought that it was an accident scene. This was until she turned around and cried out, Please help. Mr Beadle said that they were only at the scene for a few seconds, but that he counted six men and two women. One of the men and the second girl were struggling at the back seat of the Holden. Mr Beadle believed he was trying to prevent her from getting out of the car, rather than trying to remove her from it. Mrs Beadle, in her testimony, said that this woman had the prettiest curly or wavy hair she'd ever seen, and that she believed it had been about collar length, but maybe a little longer. Mr Beadle also noted that one of the men was walking around behind the light-coloured Holden with his hands behind his head. To him, this man's body language was indicative that he wanted no part in what was taking place. As the Beatles pulled away from the side of the road and passed by the scene, Jocelyn saw the second woman, who she said was tall and slender. One man was forcibly holding one of her arms, and she saw another man race to grab the other arm. When asked to give a description of all the men she had seen, there was one individual she was particularly specific about. According to Mrs Beadle, the man who had run over to grab the woman's second arm was wearing all white, white top, white trousers, and was either barefoot or wearing thongs. He was very thin and looked unhealthy. She said he reminded her of the stereotypical heroin junkie. The other man, who was holding the taller woman, was Caucasian, well-built, average height, and and between the ages of 22 and 26, with dark, short, neat hair. The most noticeable feature to her was that he had both cuffs of his shirt sleeves rolled up, looking 100% perfect. It left her with the thought that perhaps he was a weightlifter or a bouncer. Mrs Beadle added that she had noticed the back seat of the lower, second car had been removed, and there was a drum standing where the seat would normally have been located. With how it is written, I believe that she is saying this was a feature of the Black Falcon sedan. The Beatles have stated that they didn't stop because they thought the people were possibly just couples fighting and had decided to wait and see if there was anything about it on the news before reporting it to police. They did, however, claim at the second inquest that they had stopped at the Helladon police station at the time to make a report, but it was closed. Neither was ever asked at any point to identify individuals using photo boards. Our next witness, who also participated in the second inquest, claimed to have seen an incident in the early to mid-70s while working as a salesman for a Toowoomba farm machinery firm. Melvin Oliver recalled that he had had an appointment with a farmer in late September or early October at Cominia at 2pm. While driving down the range, he sees a vehicle parked off to the left-hand side of the road, which, to clarify for those outside of Australia, would be in his direction of travel. He says it is a dull black 1966 Holden and that there are three people in the left-hand lane of the road, two women and one man. Mr Oliver recalls he slowed to almost a stop in the right-hand lane and saw one of the women was seated on the ground with her hands tied behind her back. The other woman was standing nearby, and the man was in the process of tying her up also, by wrapping cords around her wrists. He noticed the woman being tied was tall, or at least taller than the male behind her. 
Mr Oliver described the man as having shoulder-length, scraggy, unkept brown hair that had a bit of a curl in it and as having a tattoo on his right upper arm. He was wearing a black t-shirt, black jeans and thongs. This could align with the description of an upper arm tattoo given by Mr Doherty, although it's also a common location for tattoos, I guess. Mr Oliver sees the back door of the Holden move and realises there is at least one person, maybe more, still inside the car. He starts to feel uneasy and pulls away from the scene. Mr Oliver has stated that at the time he took no steps to report what he had witnessed, as he assumed that what he had seen was nothing more than a student prank. Apparently, there was a spate of them around town at the time, although I've not seen anything else confirming this, so I'm not sure if the mention of this in the coroner's report is confirmation from the coroner that these pranks were in fact a thing at the time, or if he's just stating that this is Mr Oliver's recollection. Mr Oliver also said that the girls didn't call out to him, although he insists they must have seen him slow down and his interest in what was happening. He also claimed that he rang police after hearing the women's remains were located in 1976, as well as after the case was featured on the TV show Australia's Most Wanted in 1989. But he says no one ever returned his calls and police have no record of him ever making contact. His statement was finally recorded in 1999. Not mentioned in the coroner's report, but spoken of in Eric's second book, is Mr Oliver's additional claim that shortly after he drove off, about 100 metres down the road, he came across a grey 63 E.J. Holden also parked off to the side of the road. He saw three men in the vehicle, two of whom were looking back up the road. What happens next would be frightening to say the least. Mr Oliver says he passes the grey Holden and not long after looks into his rearview mirror to see the same car straddling the white centre line and coming at him flat out. After pulling up alongside him, the two men on the passenger side, who weren't wearing any shirts, start waving at him and yelling at him to pull over. When he refuses to pull over, Mr Oliver said that the driver of the Holden started to push him off the road. Terrified, Mr Oliver decides his Japanese vehicle can outrun the Holden. So many Aussies would be pissed by that statement. The men continue to pursue him all the way down to Withcott Hotel, at which point they apparently turn left down a road that heads out to Murphy's Creek. When later shown a photo of the rope used to tie up Lorraine and Wendy, he was asked if it was similar to that which he had seen being used on the women on the range. He said no. He didn't think it was the same rope. He believed the rope he had seen being used was a heavier one, more like a woven cotton rope. Mr Vivian and Mrs Rose Murphy also came forward in February of 2005 after seeing the case on a TV show and realising that they may have seen something relevant. In 1974, they were living in Dolby and regularly travelled to Redcliffe near Brisbane to visit Mrs Murphy's mother. The coroner's report states that they could not recall any information in relation to exactly when the event they witnessed occurred not the time of day, day of the week, month, or even year. However, in his book, Eric indicates that they said it was semi-dark to dusk, or at least dark enough for their headlights to be on. Both of the Murphys do say that while driving down the Toowoomba Range Road, they came upon a car pulled off to the left, virtually on the bitumen, and a woman ran out onto the road in front of them, being chased by a man. The man is described as being of average build and height, with dark hair. As the couple passed by slowly in their vehicle, the distressed woman reached out her hands towards them and cried out help repeatedly. Mrs Murphy said that she saw another couple parked near a car off to the left-hand side of the road. 
She had thought at the time that they were cuddling, but in hindsight believes the woman was being restrained. The Murphys were too frightened to stop, but claimed that they went to the Helladon police station to report the incident and what they'd seen, but that no one ever took a statement from them. Mrs Murphy's curiosity about the incident remained, and she says she rang the police several times over the next 15 years, but no one ever followed up with her. Once again, Mrs Murphy was never given any photo boards to try and identify anyone she or her husband had seen that day in the middle of the road. Robert Styler resided in the town of Gatton in 1974 and was dating a woman who lived in Toowoomba. According to his statement in 1999, because of this, he regularly drove up and down the range. Mr Styler says that one evening, while driving down the range, he sees a faded green 1964 Holden sedan, possibly an EH. It was basically on the bitumen. He sees two men struggling with two women. A man known to him as Wayne Hilton was near the rear passenger's door of the vehicle, trying to force a young woman into the back seat. The other couple was struggling near the front passenger's side mudguard of the car. Mr Styler decided not to stop, because according to him, he was aware of Wayne's reputation for violence. In 1999, when shown a photo of Miss Wilson and Miss Evans, he identified Wendy as being one of the women he had seen. At the time of his statement, he claimed the incident he witnessed occurred between 8 and 10 p.m. I will note here that the coroner in his findings does raise concerns for inconsistencies as to when Mr Styler met Wayne Hilton leading him to question whether he would in fact have been able to personally identify Wayne Hilton at the stated time of this incident. He points particularly to the fact that Mr Styler refers to Wayne as being in and out of jail a lot, which, at least at that point in time, was not true. Another thought I had about this sighting being at night was how could he have seen people so clearly? This, however, was cleared up by him saying that the fair lane he drove at the time had very good double headlights and 100-watt aircraft landing lights fitted for the high beams. He says that the woman he identified as Wendy was face into him, allowing him to see her face clearly. Peter Trauka attended school in Toowoomba in the 1970s. He claimed he knew Boogie Hilton from school. Boogie's daughter disputed this and at the inquest presented responses from the Department of Education which seemingly offered proof her father did not attend school in Toowoomba. This would obviously invalidate his claim of knowing Boogie from school. Mr Trauka's statement in 1989 indicated that the event he witnessed occurred in 1973, but at the inquest he clarified that he more accurately knew it to have happened simply prior to November 1974, at which point he had moved to Mount Isa. There are some noticeable differences between the information found in the coroner's report and that found within Eric's second book regarding Mr Trauka's sighting. I'm unsure if the coroner and Eric were each utilising statements and or inquest testimony when reporting these details. At the very least, I would assume the coroner to have access to any and all of Mr Trauka's previously provided statements, but I'm unsure if Eric had access to these as well. Either way, the contrasting information is glaring, so I will give separate accounts of each so that all the possible evidence is included. According to the coroner's report, Trauka claimed to have been driving on the downhill section of the range just before dark, when he saw a green E.K. Holden, which he was very familiar with and which he said he knew to be the vehicle Boogie Hilton drove. Further down the hill, he saw a grey E.J. Holden, recognised to him as being owned or driven by Raymond Davidson and Graham Ferdinand. Between the vehicles, he saw a person who he believed to be Boogie, struggling with a person on the ground. 
Mr Trelka concedes that he only saw the person standing from behind and made a deduction that it was Boogie based solely on the vehicle present and the person's dark, wavy hair. He did state, though, that it was clear that the person on the ground was resisting attempts to be brought back to their feet. Nearer the E.K. Holden, Mr Trelka says there was a male struggling with another person on the ground, also seeming to attempt to bring them to their feet. He could not, however, state whether either of the people on the ground was male or female. He did believe there was a woman sitting in the E.K. sedan at the time, though. A companion in Mr Trelka's car at the time, Donald Collins, stated apparently that he believed the second male to be Alan Shorty Laurie. However, in Eric's book, he seems to include varying information, as well as possible additional information. Eric says that the vehicles are identified by Mr Trelka as a green and white EK and a green and white EH Holden. Again, when we talk about green and white vehicles, it is referring to green vehicles with white roofs. In Eric's account, Mr Trelka is with two mates in his car, one of whom we've already identified as Donald Collins, but the other remains unidentified. Interestingly, in this version, Trelka identifies the individuals on the ground as women, as we could probably assume to be the case anyway, but identifies two men near each woman, rather than just one. The shorter woman is apparently seen struggling with the individual he believes is Boogie, as well as one of the younger lorries with a hair lip. So, FYI, the lorry that has a hair lip is Angie lorry. The taller woman is being apprehended by individuals Trelker identifies as being Raymond Davidson and Graham Ferdinand. In this version, Trelker also nominates Angie lorry as the driver of the EH and Shorty lorry as the driver of the EK. I find it odd that if this information was given by Peter Trelka at any point in time, that the information would vary so much to that in the coroner's report. There is far more men present in the second account, though no third woman mentioned in a car. Ungi Laurie isn't mentioned at all in the coroner's report, not even via a description of his hair lip. Additional information in Eric's book indicates that Trelka said he and his mates followed behind these vehicles to see where they went, and that apparently at the bottom of the range, they turned off towards Murphy's Creek, travelled a short distance, and then turned left again into a paddock, towards what used to be the old swimming area. A final point from Eric's book that I find interesting is the claim that Trelka indicated that he and his mates had stopped and parked at the top of the range, and that it was from this vantage point that they could apparently see the two vehicles pulled off to the side, further down the range road. If this is true, and it's also true that they followed along behind the cars to see where they went, I'm a little confused as to how the details of the second account are so specific. I don't understand the relationship of distance between the top of the range and where these cars would have been pulled over on the shoulder. But given the three witnesses, according to Trelka, are never passing the scene and are only ever behind the incident or the vehicles by an unknown distance, I tend to query their ability to usefully identify any individuals, particularly the gender or identity of those that were said to be only ever inside vehicles. Given these varying descriptions of Mr Trelka's account of the incident, I would certainly love to see both his original statement and the transcript from the inquest. Our last possible sighting is by Mr and Mrs Britcher. According to the coroner's report, Mr Brian and Mrs Valmay Britcher said that their daughter had been hospitalised in Toowoomba in October of 1974 and that they had regularly visited her from their home in Lockyer at the bottom of the Toowoomba range. They claimed that when travelling home on either the weekend of the 6th and 7th of October or the weekend prior, 
that they saw a female struggling with a man on the side of the road. They noted a pale-coloured E.J. Holden parked on the left-hand side of the road. This woman yelled, help me, as they drove past, and although they didn't stop, Mrs. Britcher did look back to see the man trying to put the woman in the car. In front of the car, she saw another man and another woman. According to the Britchers, they contacted a local constable the day after the incident to report it, but it was dismissed by him on the grounds that he had no reports of assaulted or missing women and no statement was taken. When the Britchers tried to make another report in 1976, after the discovery of the bodies, the detective supposedly made inquiries with the hospital at which the Britchers' daughter had been a patient and concluded from the admission records that they were mistaken about the timing of these events. Given the detectives could find no report about women being assaulted in the area, they concluded the report had been, quote, eliminated. Given what we now know regarding the police behaviour around 1976 with regard to taking reports and actioning them to a desirable degree, combined with the detailed account of the Britches and their identification of Lorraine and Wendy as the women they saw, I'm actually more inclined to believe their account over the accuracy of any police inquiry to rule out it having occurred in the date in question. Once again, in 1976, no statements were taken, nor were the Britches shown any photographs or photo boards at any time. Fourteen years after the initial investigations, a man by the name of Detective Paul Rouge took over the case, and when re-interviewing the couple, found their story to be consistent with their earlier statements. They said the vehicle they had seen was located about halfway down the range, and was pulled off to the road at a 45-degree angle, appearing to have skidded to a halt. It was described as pale green in colour, with a very faded paintwork, and in a dirty, unkept condition. They recalled that both passengers' side doors were open, and there was a man in front of the vehicle with his arms around the neck of a young woman, seemingly pulling her back towards the car. Approximately 20 yards down the hill, another man was similarly appearing to force a second woman back up to the vehicle, holding her by her arms. As the Britches drove past the second woman, she cried out, Help me! Oh God, please help us. Mr. Britcher slowed and considered stopping, but was concerned for the safety of his wife and children who were in the car with him, given the situation they were witnessing. Mrs. Britcher's account was consistent with that of her husband's across all significant particulars. When shown a photo of Lorraine and Wendy, both identified them as the women they had seen. At the inquest, Mrs. Britcher recalled of seeing the photo in 1988, quote, I knew it was the girls I saw on the Toowoomba range. Definitely. No doubt. End quote. According to Eric's book, when asked at the inquest if he could describe the men at all, Mr. Britcher indicated that he honestly couldn't, that it was the girls who he was focused on because they were screaming. As a result, he hadn't really paid attention to the men holding them. Oddly, though, the coroner's report does indicate that Mr. Britcher, Britcher oh God, gave descriptions of the men. Although it isn't made clear whether this is information from a previous statement, or from the inquest itself. I would assume the information was from their 1988 statement, though, given his comment at the inquest. The descriptions attributed to Mr. Britcher in the coroner's report are as follows. The man holding the woman identified as Wendy was described as appearing 25 to 35 years of age, being slim to medium build, with short dark hair and noticeably muscular arms. He describes the man holding the woman identified as Lorraine, as being also between 25 and 35 years of age, between 5'9 and 5'11, and of medium build with collar-length, untidy, dark brown or black hair. In 1988, both of the Britchers were shown a photo board of 16 young males. On the typed statement of Mr Britcher, 
there is a handwritten note saying, quote, selected Wayne Hilton, comma, another as similar, full stop. If he had to pick one, he went for the other, end quote. On his wife's statement, it is noted that, quote, 28 slash 4 slash 89, photo E is very like the man I saw, end quote. The coroner notes in his findings that it is not clear, nor is there any record to indicate who photo E actually depicted. I'm not surprised by this. As Detective Rouge has stated in media interviews, that when he took over the file, it was not to the standard that he would expect regarding the murder of two young women. Minimal statements had been taken, and there were some newspaper clippings, but that was about the totality of the file at the time when he took over the case. When comparing and weighing all of these witness statements regarding an incident on the Toowoomba Range Road, the coroner indicated in his findings that the length of time between events and statements being taken would without doubt have affected the versions being recounted, and that indeed significant details, such as what time of day the event occurred, could have reasonably faded, although it was his opinion that striking events such as a man or men struggling with a woman or women would likely be fixed in the memory of a witness. He asserts that this, combined with the fact that no other women were reported missing in the area at the time, nor have any woman come forward since the publicity of these events to state that they were the women on the side of the road, suggests that something very similar to that recollected by the witnesses did in fact occur, and that moreover, it was likely that the reason no one came forward to identify themselves as the women involved was because those women had indeed died soon after the incident. He concludes that the women witnessed being assaulted on the downhill section of the Range Road on October 6, 1974, were indeed Lorraine Wilson and Wendy Evans. One last incident that occurred on the Range Road, but details of which were omitted from the coroner's report, as it was dismissed by both the coroner and myself as being unrelated to Lorraine and Wendy, may still be relevant in possibly identifying men who formed part of the group of individuals known to be undertaking this behaviour. This event was witnessed by Jeffrey, by Mr. Jeffrey, by Mr. Jeffrey Nuttall. In a statement given to police in 2012, he claimed that in 1974 he was driving up the range with his wife and children in the car. It was late afternoon and his wife was driving. As they came around a corner near the top of the range, they saw a group of four or five people on the road, almost all of whom were men. He said that they almost had to stop completely. He directs his wife to pull over between the two vehicles. The first vehicle, which was now about 20 metres behind them, was a green and white EJ or EH Holden. The other vehicle, about 20 metres ahead of them, was described as being a very old, possibly late 1940s model car. Mr Nuttall described the vehicle as being high-set, with mudguards protruding and a faded paint job. He said that as they stopped, everyone immediately scattered back to the vehicles, except for one girl. She was standing to the left-hand side of the vehicle ahead of them. She was talking to the occupants of that car and then slowly walked back towards the other vehicle, her arms folded and her head down as she sobbed. As she passed by his side of their vehicle, Mr Nuttall wound down his window and asked her if she was all right. He says she merely mumbled something inaudible through her sobs and continued to the car behind them. At this time, Mr Nuttall notices another shorter woman standing behind the open passenger's door of that car, waiting for her. The whole sewage situation doesn't sit well with him, and he asks his wife to reverse back so that he could write down the number plate of the Holden. At the time, he was hopeful that simply the occupants knowing he had taken down their number plate 
might have been enough to defuse the situation he was witnessing. He didn't report the incident at the time, and it wasn't until the late 1990s when he read an article about Lorraine and Wendy's murders that mentioned a green and white Holden being on the range that he approached police. According to him, no witness statements were taken, and when he chased up the matter several weeks later, he was told that they already knew who these people were and that they didn't require the registered number of the vehicle as they already had it. If true, this would certainly be an odd statement for police to be making in the 1990s regarding the case, given where we still stand today. There were several reasons why it is unlikely that the two women seen on the range by Mr Nuttall were Lorraine and Wendy. Firstly, the incident he sees occurs headed up the range, not down, as is the case with all other witness accounts I've read. And the way that the range works, the uphill and downhill section are completely separated. Further, one of the women walks right by his car. She doesn't ask for help, nor does she accept it when he asks if she's okay. I don't believe that this incident involved Lorraine and Wendy, but it is a possibility that one or more of the men who were involved in their attacks were present at this one. So identifying these women, and in turn these men, could still prove useful to the case. I'd certainly love to know if Mr Nuttall still has this registration number, or if there's still any record of it. While these Range Road accounts are undoubtedly the last known possible sightings of the girls alive, they aren't believed to be the last time the girls were heard, and the details of that are just as horrific as the premise. On the night of 6 October 1974, Officer Ian Hamilton of the Toowoomba Traffic Branch was dispatched to the Yukana Vale Youth Camp, located on the uphill section of the Toowoomba Range Road, approximately halfway between Withcott and Toowoomba. The coroner's report states that persons had reported hearing a woman screaming from somewhere within earshot of the camp, although in his book, Eric indicates that at the inquest, Mr Hamilton clearly stated that he was able to identify the screams as coming from two different females because of the pitch of the screams. Mr Hamilton said that he had arrived at the camp just after 9pm. He and his partner were directed to a location approximately 80 metres up the range from the camp. The caretakers informed them that they had heard women screaming for 20 minutes to half an hour before they had reported it to police. After initially hearing nothing for themselves, a few minutes later, Mr Hamilton said they too began hearing the women's screams. He said, quote, It's probably the only time in my service I've ever experienced the hair standing up on the back of my neck. They were just the most blood-curdling, horrendous screams I've ever heard in my life. It was obvious that they were in desperate trouble. End quote. He recalled to the inquest their frustrations at not being able to identify which direction the screams were emanating from. The wild winds were distorting both the direction and the distance of origin. At times the screams seemed to be coming from up the range to the east, and at other times from the top of the range. Mr Hamilton reported that after 30 to 40 minutes they started patrolling the area. At times, he and his partner would stop the vehicle and step out, straining to hear any evidence of the screams again, but they heard nothing along their drive through Withcott to Postman's Ridge and across the top of the escarpment. They drove for four hours searching for the owners of the screams, to no avail. They finally returned to the station about midnight, which was a couple of hours after their shift had been due to end, and advised the commencing crew of what had unfolded. This incident involving the camp and the screaming occurred a week before the women were reported missing, and as such, the possible connection between the two events was not realised until almost two years later, when the women's remains were found. It was at this point that Mr Hamilton checked the relevant records to confirm the date of the incident that had occurred in his mind. 
He revealed at the inquest that, to the best of his knowledge, not only had he brought the matter to the attention of the Homicide Squad detectives now in charge of the case, but he believed he had also given them information regarding a group of local offenders who he claimed to know to be committing sexual assaults in the area, the same individuals who have since become the prime suspects in these murders. There is no indication of what, if anything, was done at the time with the intelligence that Mr Hamilton claims to have provided to homicide detectives. When Lorraine's mum hadn't heard from her by Saturday the 12th of October, she contacted her brother Eric, who made further inquiries at the hospital where the girls worked. When it was realised that no one linked to the girls in Sydney, Dubbo or Brisbane knew of their whereabouts, Lorraine's aunt, who lived in Brisbane, reported them missing to the Chermside Police Station. Following their disappearance being reported that day, October 12, 1974, police located and interviewed the mechanic who had been fixing their car in Gundawindi, the man who had given them a lift when they hitchhiked from Gundawindi to Brisbane, and a group of men who the girls had socialised with while out one night in Brisbane. There was nothing found to indicate the involvement of any of these individuals, and the investigation stalled over the coming weeks and months. It would be almost two years before the bodies of the women would be discovered, and purely by chance. On the 25th of June, 1976, an unnamed elderly couple were on a date in bushland near Murphy's Creek, a small town approximately 30 kilometres northeast of Toowoomba. They had travelled west from Murphy's Creek, about 2.5 kilometres along Murphy's Creek Road, before turning down an unsealed track. 300 metres later, they had turned onto another, smaller track, travelling a further 400 metres before finally parking their vehicle. It is reported that upon getting out of the car, they proceeded through a nearby gateway into a wooded paddock. It was in this paddock, approximately 100 metres from the fence, where they found the scattered remains and belongings of Lorraine and Wendy. On the way back to town, they intercepted a police vehicle and reported the grisly discovery. They escorted the officer back to the scene, where he confirmed the remains as being human. Detectives were immediately dispatched from Brisbane, although the identity of the two deceased was quickly established to be likely that of Lorraine and Wendy, in part due to a transistor radio being found near the scene with Lorraine Wilson engraved on it. Lorraine and Wendy were no longer missing. In the next episode, we'll delve into the crime scene investigation, the autopsy findings, more witness accounts, where the leads point to, and how the suspects start falling into place. To be completely honest, I thought I'd chosen a simple case to begin my foray into podcasting. Two coroner's inquests, named suspects, great. I believed telling the girls' stories would be straightforward. Boy, was I wrong. The last thing I would want to be seen to be doing in my debut episode is questioning officials. I would like to build a relationship with police in order to help spread awareness for these cases, not get them offside from the outset. And I certainly don't mean any disrespect to Lorraine or Wendy's families by giving airtime to an alternate theory. But I couldn't in good conscience tell myself I'd done a balanced coverage of the case without addressing the issues with the existing evidence and claims of possible innocence. I will no doubt get some things wrong, but I only have Lorraine and Wendy's best interests at heart when sharing the details of their case. It's heartbreaking to think about the number of people who bore witness to the struggles of these two women, desperately trying to escape their captors. Screaming out for help only to watch it pass by, at times at a painfully slow roll. The way you might roll by a car accident scene on the side of the road, 
I find it utterly gut-wrenching to think about the multiple moments of hope they might have had upon seeing each approaching vehicle, only to have the terrifying realisation over and over again that no one was going to stop and help them, let alone save them. It's easy to Monday morning quarterback after the fact. Yes, there were witnesses that could have made a difference. In hindsight, their choices, whether made in fear for their own safety or that of their children, are easy to dismiss as insensitive or wrong. We all make decisions every day that change the trajectory of both our lives and others, some of whom we never cross paths with again, not knowing how we've impacted their lives, and blissfully unaware when it's for the worse. Many of those who have been witness to events in this case struggle with their decisions, haunted by what-ifs and racked by guilt. We all sit here and tell ourselves we would have made a different choice, stepped in, done something. But do we say that because we're brave? Or because we're cowards too afraid to imagine even for a moment living with a lifetime of a different decision? Choices without intent aren't inherently good or bad. Lorraine and Wendy made choices. Witnesses made choices. No one but the men who murdered Lorraine and Wendy decided their fate. If you were a woman attacked by any man or group of men in Toowoomba or the surrounding area, please consider sharing your story with police. Details of your crime could possibly corroborate details of this crime. People, locations, events, patterns of behaviour. The smallest piece of evidence can make all the difference. Some perpetrators may be deceased, but even if one is still alive, time is running out for any justice to be served for Lorraine and Wendy. Two women just beginning their lives, full of excitement for what their futures held, who were on what would be their first and last big adventure. Their lives were cut short that day in October of 1974 by the terrifying and brutal actions of a group of men who had grown accustomed to taking what they wanted from the women they preyed upon. To date, these men, whoever they are, have seen no consequences for their barbarity. We can change that. If you or someone you know has any information you believe may be relevant to the murders of Lorraine Wilson and Wendy Evans, please contact Crime Stoppers on 1-800-333-000. By providing your information to Crime Stoppers, you can remain entirely anonymous and be certain your information will be forwarded to police. Again, the reward offered for information in this case is $250,000. And finally, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the case thus far. You can find us at reward underscore offered on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You'll find all the photos, links, and media referred to throughout the episode on those pages. Please remember, if you have specific information regarding individuals that you believe is relevant, call Crime Stoppers. Social media is not the place for it. Our email is rewardofferedpod at gmail.com if you'd rather reach out that way. I think that's it for episode one. We'll see you guys tomorrow for episode two. Thanks for listening. You gonna say bye, Farah? <laughs>